Hi, I'm Dan Fromack, and welcome to Axios Recap, sponsored by United Health Group. Today is Friday, April 9th. Amazon stock is up, organized labor spirits are down, and we're focused on what it'll really take for Biden to get his infrastructure plan. It's been just over one week since President Biden unveiled his $2 trillion-plus infrastructure proposal, and the political battle lines have come into focus. Republicans, for the most part, are opposed, in part because of the corporate tax hikes and in part because they argue that Biden has stretched the definition of infrastructure beyond Merriam-Webster's wildest dreams by including items like childcare facilities and elder care. Democrats, on the other hand, are mostly supportive, arguing that the spending is needed for America to continue working for Americans. Some on the left wish it was a bit bigger, while some centrists like Senator Joe Manchin are pushing back on certain provisions, including the size of that corporate tax hike. So what we wanted to do today was talk with Democratic Congresswoman Katie Porter, who supports Biden's plan, about where there is and isn't room for compromise. That conversation in 15 seconds. We're joined now by Congresswoman Katie Porter of California. Congresswoman, let's start big picture here because words seem to matter a lot in this debate. How do you define infrastructure? So I think about infrastructure as things that we collectively need to share and invest in to help our economy grow. And so that can mean anything from quality public schools to roads. Is it? I'm curious, when you first started hearing about the Biden administration's plan, did any part of you think, oh, wow, this is really expansive. It's going to get pushback because it's so expansive. I was thrilled when President Biden was campaigning, when he started to talk about things like investing in the care economy, when he put together a plan that was designed to help build our economy. Roads and bridges are important, but so are things like broadband internet access. So are things like clean water, healthy workers, people being able to get to work and leave their home to go to work because they have elder care. This is all about helping our economy recover and remain globally competitive. And so I think this debate over what is and is not the dictionary definition of infrastructure is a little bit silly. The real question we ought to be saying to people who are who are saying, I don't support this, is you don't support investing in the American workforce. You don't support investing in American workers having the skills that they need or the jobs that they need in manufacturing um, or you know, advanced manufacturing, those kinds of things. So my frame is, is this an investment that is a good use of tax dollars that will help our economy grow for generations? If the answer is yes, I think we should be doing it. And I don't really care whether it's infrastructure technically or not. There's going to be uh, President Biden has said there are going to be two bills or two proposals, rather. The, the first one, which we're talking about that we have. And then the second one, which is kind of considered more, quote, social services infrastructure is maybe the best way to put it. Something like elder care. Wouldn't that fit more in the second one and help you get the first one through? I think this idea that there are, are two separate buckets a bucket of um, American jobs plan, which is what he's called the first thing that he's already rolled out. And then this idea that he's going to have a second plan coming soon that he's called the American families plan. And I told the White House, I think this is a big mistake. I think it's, it's mislabeling what you know as president to be true, which is that all of this is about 
our economy and economic recovery. And so now we have people saying, well, what about this? Is this really fit in this plan or that plan? First off, this is how Joe Biden's rolling it out. He's choosing to have two conversations with the American people. One that he's already had and one that's going to come. But Congress, we are going to divide this up in whatever way makes sense legislatively. So we may very well see one bill or four bills or, you know, two bills, but we're going to divide this up in terms of what we can move forward collectively to get done. And I would just say strong family policy is strong jobs policy. If people don't have a way to get to, don't have childcare, they're going to lose their jobs. And we've already seen too much of that in this pandemic. As you say, uh, the White House can do one thing and then Congress will make its decisions on how they actually turn that into legislative language and what's in it, what's not in it. From what President Biden has laid out so far, what are you most concerned could get left out of the final package? Well, from what he's put forward in the American Jobs Plan, I think what we've heard from Republicans so far and from opponents so far is, you know, one is this effort to fight about what is or is not infrastructure, but that's simply the title. Um, and it's not called the American Infrastructure Plan. It's called the American Jobs Plan. And what I really told him to call it is the American Workforce Plan. And that's really how to think about this. I think that the other thing that we're having is a debate about the price tag. Um, how much should we spend? And the reality is some of these things Things like roads and bridges are chronically underinvested in. We've invested less in universal broadband access, for example, than some of our competitor nations. But there are other parts of this plan where we have never invested. Paid family leave, we're one of the only countries um, that doesn't have that in terms of our global competitors. Um, you know, universal preschool, affordable childcare. These are areas we've never invested in. So I think there's going to be this little bit of a tension between shoring up things that we've historically done well, like physical infrastructure, and making really key first-time investments in things we've never done that are causing us to be left behind globally. There's kind of an economic philosophy split on the left when it comes to how to pay for this plan or, or even if you need to pay for this plan. There is this so-called modern monetary theory, which argues that government spending needn't necessarily be offset. Where do you come down on the idea that Biden does or doesn't need to have pay-fors in this bill? I think it's appropriate to be asking corporations to chip in. They are the major beneficiaries of this infrastructure. They use these roads to get to work. They take advantage of people who have childcare to be able to get workers to work. So it's totally appropriate to um, make that investment, to ask corporations to make an investment in our economic recovery. But it's also true that any kind of pay for that you construct is simply an estimate based on what's going to happen to the economy. So if we make these expenditures, which we can do at the federal level, we have the ability to debt finance as the federal government. If we make these expenditures, we will see the economy potentially grow, and that changes the tax revenues. The other thing I'll add is even if you adhere to the kind of strongest um, MMT philosophy, you still do need to be thinking about inflation um, and you know things like if you heat the economy up too much, then you have job shortages. I mean, you, know, you have not job shortages, you have worker shortages. Shortages. So Stephanie Kelton wrote a really good article the other day about this. I encourage people to read it, kind of explaining why there are still some constraints and things you have to be thoughtful about in this kind of big plan, even if you're doing it from an MMT perspective. And I'll tell our pod listeners, uh, if you go back in the archive, we had Stephanie Kelton on this program last year. Uh, but Congresswoman Porter, you know, you'd mentioned worker shortage. 
Are you convinced when you look at all the stuff that's supposed to get built in eight years in this plan that we have enough skilled workers to do that? There is enough skilled construction labor, and we also have the opportunity to create more. As you mentioned, this is an eight-year plan, and we have some really strong apprenticeship programs. And one of the things I'm excited about in the president's plan is a historic investment in apprenticeship programs for people who have not traditionally been in those fields. I've done a number of things with the women in the building trades organizations. These are women who are becoming electricians and plumbers and welders. And so making sure that we're creating opportunity to go train and get good high-paying jobs in these construction fields is part of what we can do with this plan because it is over eight years. This is not about just spending the money all at once. It's about creating jobs that will endure and giving people skills that they can feed their families over a lifetime um, because they're going to get these skills that we need for the future. As of right now, if you look at the latest job numbers, there's this section of so-called installers, uh, people like electricians, plumbers, that unemployment rate is much lower than the overall U.S. unemployment rate. And anyone who's tried to say get an electrician or a plumber knows how hard it can be. Do you have any concerns that the overall spending estimate actually is going to need to be higher because these people are going to be able to charge more for their services? We're going to have the ability to move over time. This is an eight-year plan again. So some of this involves, and I think this is one of the wonderful things about the plan. It doesn't say... Let's just get everybody out there frantically doing something. It says, how do we invest in our workforce to create the kinds of jobs that we'll need, not just to recover next year, but to have a strong economy in four years or eight years or 20 years? And that means, for example, training more people to be able to do some of these clean energy jobs, for example, um, conversion of buildings, um, climate resilience jobs, um, advanced manufacturing of semiconductors. That's a big part of the president's plan, for example, making America able to produce a lot of our own semiconductor needs. We're not going to do that in a year. We're going to do that over several years. And so we have the ability to not just get some people back to work, but to create new jobs. And one of my big, you know, one of the things I'm really focusing on is making sure that new job creation is spread equitably across the population, including people of color and including women. Congresswoman, um, there, there, I, I, there is a perception outside the beltway or maybe even inside the beltway that when you look to your left and your right, when, when you're sitting in Congress, that you and your colleagues, whether they be Republican or Democrat, all matter a lot less than one senator from West Virginia. So let me ask, is it fair to view the success or failure of the White House's plan largely resting on Joe Manchin's shoulders? There's no doubt that the structure of the Senate gives a large voice to whoever that 50th or 51st senator is. But it's also true that ultimately this is about what the American people want. And if the American people feel that this is the right direction to take our economy, then they need to make themselves heard um, and make it very, very clear that this is the kind of plan that we want. It may be true that because of the nature of the Senate, some of this stuff we can do through reconciliation. Some of it we need to have Mr. Manchin on board with. So then I think that will shape how it rolls out. But what we've seen already across communities from, you know, from Maine to California, from rural areas to urban areas is a strong sense that this is a thoughtful, forward-looking plan. And we see that in grassroots support, including from Republicans for these kinds of investments. So there's often a gap between what the American people want and what certain Washington politicians want. This plan has the support of the American people, and I think that's going to give it the legs to go forward. 
final question for you. You mentioned at the beginning of this conversation that, that you thought the White House probably should have laid out everything they wanted up front as opposed to one plan, to, you know, one plan today, one plan in three weeks. Including that's not just the spending side, but it's the tax side, obviously. The second plan is supposedly going to have the individual tax reform on it. Uh, do you believe that real negotiation in Congress can't begin until we get that second piece from the White House? Already having conversations in Congress about, um, for example, you know, what aspects of this plan do we think um, are, are sort of dead on in terms of their scope and size? Where is, where is the president maybe missed something? One of the things that we're supposed to do as representatives is know more about the needs of our local communities than folks in Washington. So it's our job to come back and say, this part looks good, but I'm concerned about this. This this investment in housing, for example, doesn't seem big enough to meet the needs of California. Um, and so it's our job to be reading the plan and be providing that feedback to the White House. And we have a White House that's willing to listen and willing to learn. And I think that's going to make all the difference. I should say, I don't think it matters as much how he rolls it out in terms of different pieces, but that the American people ultimately understand that the pieces do fit together, that this isn't sort of an a la carte menu, but that in fact, if you want to make big investments in clean energy, for example, you have to also make investments in worker training to get us there. If you want to have more affordable childcare, then you have to make investments in building childcare centers and in training caregivers. So I think the most important part is for people to see that however it gets rolled out, the pieces fit together to give us solid building blocks for our economy for generations to come. Congresswoman Katie Porter, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Welcome back. What we're watching today is the National Labor Relations Board, which announced that Amazon has likely defeated a unionization effort at its warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama. The quick story is that only 55% of the nearly 6,000 Amazon workers at that facility chose to cast ballots with the no's beating the yeses by a more than two to one margin. Now, the union has challenged about 500 ballots, but even if it wins every one of those challenges, it wouldn't be enough to overturn the result. What likely comes next is a legal challenge from the union, maybe based on the fact that Amazon successfully requested that the U.S. Postal Service put a mailbox outside the warehouse, which may or may not be viewed as improperly tipping the scales. We're also planning to listen tomorrow to a very special episode of our sister show, Axios Today, featuring an interview with Senator Tammy Duckworth about anti-Asian American discrimination. Here's a clip in which Duckworth talks about what her own mother faces. I worry about my mom because my mom is very independent. She's going to be 80 here in, in a month. She still drives. She goes shopping. She just told me the other day where she uh, was really being mistreated and verbally by an associate at the store. And, and she finally said, listen, I'm not here to fight with you. I'm just here to buy food for my family. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And a very, very special thank you to our producer, Tim Shovers, whose name you have heard at the end of this show ever since it began about three years ago. Today is Tim's final day, and he has been intimately involved with every piece of content and production of the show forever, and also put up with me every single day for nearly three years. So, Tim, you do not have children. If and when you do have them, you will be a very patient father. Happy trails to you. And for listeners, if you are fans of the Washington Nationals baseball team, please be sure to check out the daily podcast called Nats Chat, which Tim also produces. Have a great National Unicorn Day. Tim, have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you on Monday.